Hey boys and girls, we got a special treat for you today. Luckily got a tour through the program here at, uh, at Brownsville. It says uh, Boca Chia, um, a gateway to Mars. I was really, really happy that I got the chance to, to see the product uh, that's being manufactured here, these rockets. It's spectacular the way they're doing it. And it's totally different than anything I've seen with rocket production at any other companies. Uh, I've had criticisms in the past. It was when I did my reports. And, oh, okay. uh, and even on the, the Model 3 we have, I wanted to show you the gaps on one side, but not on the other. I, I don't <laughs> understand how that can happen. Sure, sure. So, but no, I thought your criticisms were, were accurate. We, we've got a sticker on the side of the car that says Monroe Life. And people are coming up and showing us their car and telling us about their experiences with a Tesla and whatnot. Yeah. These guys are really deep into, into loving this thing. And yet, for some reason or other, we have a couple of little problems with our car. And and then I see another car and it's a perfect build. It took us a while to iron out the production process, especially during a production ramp. Friends kind of like ask me like, when should they buy a Tesla? I'm like, well, either buy it right at the beginning or when the production reaches steady state. But during that like production ramp, that's it's super hard to be like in vertical climb mode and get everything right on on the little details. It's it's just a super difficult thing. If you really want like things to be dialed, it's like actually the very early cars or. Once, once production is leveled off, that, that's when it's going to be best. We have a 21, a yeah. Model 3 21, and ours had the little problems. But at the well, end of the day, sure. this guy's car was fabulous. Paint job was spectacular. That thing was absolutely pristine perfect. Yeah. That's as good as anybody. I, I just don't understand it. Mine was built this month. His was a month later. Mine had problems. His is perfect. We actually did improve uh, gap and paint quality quite a bit towards the end of last year, even, even in the course of December. We were able to really focus on it and improve it uh, a great deal. Like one of the things that was happening when we were like <laughs> ramping ramp production was the paint wasn't necessarily drying enough. It's like, well, if you go faster, you, you know, it's, it's like you, you just discover these things. Like so if we knew them in advance, we'd fix them in advance. You ramp, you ramp the ramp the line, and the paint that had had an extra sort of minute to dry, or two minutes, or whatever. Now yeah. it doesn't have the two minutes, and so it, it was more prone to it have to issues. I mean, production is hell. Uh, <laughs> it, it, like like the real thing that's I think unique for cars for Tesla is achieving volume production. It was like of, of any American startup car company, I I think Tesla's like the first to achieve volume production in a hundred years, basically. Like I think Chrysler was the last one. Prototypes are relatively speaking easy, and and they're also like fun. Like prototypes are easy and fun, and, and then reaching volume production for, with a reliable product at an affordable price is is like excruciatingly difficult. You've done a good job. I've seen the difference between the one we had in 2018, then uh, the Model Y. People were coming up, hey, which one should I buy? And I said, but if I'm going to buy an electric car, and we've seen everybody's, I mean, we've torn every, everybody's electric car apart. If I was going to tell somebody to buy one and he had to have one, I would suggest the Model Y. And lots of people did that. This one, this Model 3 we've got, this may be the second one that I'm going to suggest. You know, yeah. you can either have one of these two. They both they both work really well. Yeah. And I have to tell you, we've gone six 6,000 plus miles so far in a couple of days, yeah. in a few days. The seats in your car are phenomenal. Yeah. Absolutely phenomenal. I, I can't say enough about them. I drive a, a, a Jeep Wrangler. If I had to sit in that seat for an hour, I'd have to get a chiropractor <laughs> sure. and, uh, and, a, and, and, and probably surgery. These seats, we were sitting in them for hours yeah. and hours and hours and hours, yeah. and there's no fatigue. They're brilliant. And you make them yourself. I mean, what, what we're really trying to do there with the seat is we put a lot of effort into this. Is minimize any peaks and pr any pressure peaks, so it, it yeah. like evens out the pressure. Like if if your butt hurts, it's basically going to be because there's there's some part of the seat that is producing a, a, a pressure peak. Yeah. And that's and that's going to just cut off your circulation and make your butt hurt. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. But but there've been quite a few iterations. In fact, I mean, we, we've the, the early Model S's had 
I think probably the worst seat of any car I've ever sat in. <laughs> wow. I mean, I, I call it the stone toadstool. <laughs> it's like stone. if you wanted to sit on a stone toadstool, that yeah. was the early Model S seats. If you sat on it long enough, eventually your, your body, body your, your butt would win eventually. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. <laughs> it's like we try to go from, okay, from stone toadstool to something that is, it just feels great. That, that was a long journey and a lot of effort. It, it paid off. Like I said, we do a lot of work on different things. And I would say without a question of a doubt, that seat is, in my estimation, for my body and one is the best seat on the planet. There's nothing better than yeah. that. A lot of the OEMs, they don't, they don't want to make uh, seats because they say that's something that should be outsourced. And I believe that anything you touch, anything that you're going to interface with, yes. Has to, be, has to be made in-house because that's your profound knowledge. So. Yeah, absolutely. And you, you iterate on it and keep making it better. It's this particular seat, it, it, it's, it has improved quite a lot from the early production Model 3 to present day. It's improved a fair bit. And like one, one of the breakthroughs was like actually Franz von Holzhausen had a seat that the studio had done. And, and I sat in that seat and I was like, wow, this seat's great. And we're like, okay, let's figure out how to make, how, how do we get a production seat to feel like handmade, hand tailored yeah. without costing a ton of money? You just can't, it's very difficult to do that if you're working right. with a supplier. Well, near impossible because they, they got to get it cranked out and, and moving and quickly. And then what they want to do is they want to take the underpinnings, those uh, weldments or castings, if they haven't gone that far, they want to use those over and over and over again for everybody. And so consequently, yeah. everybody may look different on the outside, but inside, probably not so much. So yeah. that's, that's good stuff. But I, I have to tell you about the best stuff. And okay, so we had, we had the uh, beta autopilot uh, yeah. system and we did have problems. But the problems weren't with your system, they were with the roads. People are painting, either they don't paint in certain areas or they paint right in the center. How are we gonna get legislation to make it so that things are consistent between states? In the old days, it probably didn't make much difference, but now we're moving into self-driving. Yeah. For self-driving, even if the road is painted completely, completely wrong, a UFO lands in the middle of the road, the car still cannot crash and still needs to do the right thing. Like what really matters, like the prime directive for the autopilot system is don't crash. Like that that really overrides everything. No, no matter what the lines say or how the road is done, the, the thing that needs to happen is minimizing the probability of impact while getting you to your destination conveniently and comfortably. But but the prime directive, absolute priority is a minimized probability of, of injury to yourself or to uh, anyone on the road, on the pedestrians or anything like that. It, it can't be dependent on the road markings being correct or anything like that. It's just gotta be, no matter what, it's not gonna crash. Corey and I had an issue, and luckily I got out of it, but what happened was they painted all kinds of lines all over the place. There was an old off-ramp and a new off-ramp and a bunch of cones and some flashing red lights. It was totally, if I had to take that thing and knew I had to take it, I would be totally confused as to what to do where. But when the car came into it, the, the lines are telling it, okay, go here. That scared the living daylights out of me. If we would have crashed, the press would have instantly said it was all your fault. And in essence, the fault lies in this massive mess that, that, that we were trying to keep up with. And then, quite frankly, I stopped driving in the in the right-hand lane. That was it. I mean, the car wants you to keep going back there because it wants you to oh. follow the rules. But no, you can change that. It's a setting. So I want to make sure that we've got this on video because I'm guaranteeing you somebody is going to screw up somewhere 
And, and, and people have sure. to know it's the road that can bugger the things up as well as your autopilot thing. I mean, it would certainly be helpful to have roads with uh, accurate markings and everything. Uh, really, for self-driving, <clears throat> it's got to be, even if somebody tries to trick the car, they do not succeed in tricking yeah, the car. Right. You know, people will do weird things. So yeah. it's got to be maintain safety no matter what and don't let yourself get tricked. John, he gave us a ride. And you can hear me going, you know, my uh, voice went up about three octaves. I was so excited. I have never, I've sat in F-18s. I didn't fly them but i was sat in them and i saw how everything was supposed to work on the ground yeah i threw a simulator i flew a c-17 i know what you can do and what you can't do what autopilot will gonna and i never seen anything never ever seen anything quite like what you've got in the new self-driving thing this this is just absolutely brilliant this should get into the marketplace as fast as possible. It's accurate. It's much more accurate than what we have in the in the Model Three. It's accurate. It's it's kind of aggressive. If there's a hole, it'll yeah. it'll find that hole. It makes left-hand turns, which I've heard from everybody can't uh -huh. be done. This will save more lives than airbags, seat belts, and anything else that anybody's ever ever gotten. Because I think that's correct. This, it will. Yeah. yeah. I, I I really I, I was so impressed. I, I I couldn't believe it. And I I have some videotape. I want to sure. I want the yeah. rest of the world to know what the new standard is because yeah. in the auto world, some people are going to win, some people are going to lose, and some are just going to fade away. But I'm telling you, that system. I don't know who you developed or how it developed, but we developed the hardware yeah. and the software. Uh, we've just got we've got a very talented team that we built from scratch for autopilot software and autopilot hardware. We've got a really a lot of talented people. How many lines of code is in that uh, in that thing? A bazillion? A trillion? Whatever. What, uh... Well, I don't think lines of code is necessarily a metric of goodness. Generally, I, I would consider lines of code to be uh, like a, a large number of lines of code to be bad, not good. And in fact, I would generally give like two points for deleting a line of code, one point for adding a line of code. When you ha when you have n neural nets, you, you know it, 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 there's a whole whole lot of statistics going on. Basically, a lot of dot product yeah. going on. The lines of code is, becomes especially not a merit a figure of merit for when, when you've got a lot of complex neural nets uh, operating. You have a lot, lot of matrix math. We haven't actually counted it, but I mean, I, maybe, I don't know, a few hundred thousand lines of code or really? something like that. Really? A few hundred thousand? That's yeah. amazing. I, I, I would I, like it to be less. You know? Your philosophy about getting rid of uh, lines of code, I have a philosophy about getting rid of parts. Sure. And the more parts you get rid of. In fact, uh, a long time ago, when I counted up the number of things in the, in the yeah. wheel area, uh, I said this should all be one part, and then totally agree. Yeah, you got it. I can, I can tell you how, how that that problem arose. Well, I think you can generally see the the errors, the organizational structure errors. They manifest themselves in the product, the sort of wheelhouse areas of the body. There was a lot of engineering done, and there were a lot of right answers to the wrong question. Somebody would say like, "What's the best material to make this little section of the body out of?" Or, and what's the right material to make this little section? And and I, I think we've got probably the best material science team uh, in the world. A lot of them also do do work at SpaceX as well. The would ask what's the best material for this this purpose best material for that and, and and they got like 50 different answers and they were all true individually but they were not true collectively right um, and so and, and when you when you try to join all these dissimilar alloys and you, you you have galvanic corrosion so you've got not you've got to have better seal and, and you've got gaps that you've got to seal and you now have got to join these things and some of them don't some of them need to be joined with rivets some of them need to be joined with uh, spot welds some of them need to be joined with re resin or resin and spot welds you know frankly it looks like a, sort of a bit of a Frankenstein situation when you when you look at it all together I, can, I, can't, I can't emphasize enough the nightmare of, of, of sealing in between the gaps 
That is like, yeah. that might be the most painful job in the yeah. whole factory is, yeah. is spackling on the, 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 the sealant. If there's like a little error with the curing the sealant or like, a, like just somebody who's been working several hours makes a slight mistake, then you've got like, a, now you've got an MBH issue because you've got a little hole yeah. and you've got a leak issue and it's, it's just like, yeah. you, this is terrible. I mean, you can muscle through it and we have, but it's just way better to have a single piece casting. And then you don't have any gaps, no sealant. You don't, you don't have dissimilar metals. You can reduce the size of the body shop dramatically. Right. So just just, just having the, the rear body castings for Model Y allowed us to reduce the, the body shop by 30%. So there's, a, there's roughly a thousand robots on the Model 3 body line, which by the way is also not a figure of merit. You want fewer things, not more. We, we got rid of 300 robots just with that rear body casting. Yeah. And then we're, we're, when we go to the front body casting, we'll get rid of another 300 robots. I have in my shop for 15 years a rear casting, a center casting, and a front casting to make a car. Thousands. Yeah, I totally agree. Thousands of engineers and yeah. I mean uh, big, big time uh, executives and sure. walk by it. Hey, have you ever thought of doing? Wow, well, you know, Sandy. And they don't do it, and they don't do it because we got this body shop, and because they've continuously hung their hat on this thing. They figured, you know, this is the way it should go. I'm very disappointed. I thought I was going to see a single piece casting in a Model 3 as well. I thought you were going to shoot the two and then glue it together, but that's all right. I mean, at some point we will probably switch to a single piece casting. <clears throat> I think we need to get the Texas factory and the Berlin factory going. We do have an issue of like, it's, it's hard to change the wheels on the bus when it's going 80 miles an hour down the highway. Yeah. You know, Model 3 is like most of our, or was most of our volume. Model Y will become, it will exceed Model, Model 3. Yeah. We, we, we just need basically an opportunity to kind of re redo the factory without blowing up the cash flow of the company. Right. We're looking forward to seeing what's going to happen in Berlin because quite frankly, uh, you know, you're a lot, a lot closer to the uh, casting companies and Germany has fabulous tool makers. So I'm expecting sure. to see lots of good stuff out of that. But are you going to have three castings then or just uh, two? Effectively, there'll be a rear casting, a front casting, and then the center will be a structural pack. Structural pack is also, this is an important thing that I've been wanting to do for, since the beginning of the company. It, it was it was always tough to kind of like, because it's a coupled problem. So like, and, and when, when you're in high speed R&D, it's, it's, you really, you often want to decouple the problems because you're trying to solve uh, electrical issues in the battery and you're trying to solve structural issues. And if you bring them together, then it's hard, you, you know, you're, you're putting the whole the whole company at risk basically. Yeah. But now since we have Model 3 and Model Y in production we, and, and we have a new factory that's getting built, this is our opportunity to say, okay, now we're going to do a coupled problem where we're going to combine the, the, the battery pack and the basically body chassis, the, the primary structure, right. the primary structure. We're going to transfer shear through the cans of the, of the, the, cells. Of the cells and just do, you know, shear transfer, which is, gives you a super stiff, really great moment of inertia. Yeah. It, it's like a common, they do this with common fiber, you know, and, and a composite sandwich, like having aluminum honeycomb with upper lower carbon face sheets, um, and you get incredible shear transfer and less, you know, great moment of inertia. For, it, you get a real stiff, big plate. And so getting dual use of the, the like, so, so the cells become structure. And that's like what I, what I was trying to make at the, the battery drape presentation. But I think a lot of people didn't quite understand why that's such an important thing. You know, the, the, the cells today in every car are carried like a sack of potatoes. They have, they, they actually have negative structural value because not only do they need to be, not only do they, they don't serve to aid in the structure of the car and they, they have to be isolated from the rest, you know, from the rest of the car. So it's isolated from, you know, vibration and shock loads and that kind of thing. So then you've got to put mass into isolating the cells because otherwise they'll, they'll bang against the side of the battery casing and that's, right. that's not good. By essentially bonding the cells in there and where the bonding foam serves as both a, an adhesive and a, a fire retardant, you, you basically get two birds with one stone. So multifunctional designs is something I really, really try and get my, the companies that I work with, I try and get them to do that. We got a ton of people right after the uh, the battery, your battery show uh, saying, oh, you can't do 
this, you can't do that. So we made one up, or made it out of wood blocks and whatnot, yeah. and said, this is what's going to be. And then we, I talked a little bit about what the effect is and the loading and transfer of loading and how much safer and stronger this is going to be on and on. I think it's the highest rated uh, show we've ever put out. I'm just explaining, you know, why this is such a good idea because you've got, you got people, you know, designing yeah. cars all over the planet sure. and they're telling me why it's not a good idea. And I'm saying, tell me again. I mean, really? Yeah. You're an engineer. This is the kind of stuff that, that really needs to have happen. Yeah, I think it'd like be helpful to show and tell. Because if you say like shear transfer, <laughs> using a steel cancer, shear transfer between upper and lower face sheets, what does that actually mean? Like, well, let's show you. You know, this is what happens if you've got just a little floppy sheet or, or you just have like a limited number of stringers for shear transfer. You can see it's like, it's still, it's quite bendy. But as soon as you have a whole bunch of, of cans or honeycomb or anything like that, and you bond an upper lower face sheet, it gets crazy stiff. Like you can't right. bend, like you can just put them together and like one thing's floppy and the other thing's right. stiff as hell. And that's really what you want. This, this will give, also give like the torsional rigidity will be much better. And so if you're like tr you're trying to improve like the ride and feel of the car, you say like, wh what's, the, what's the frequency of this car? Is it like a sort of real bendy spring or, or is it like tight? And that feeling of like, is this car tight? What really, you, if people don't understand why does this car feel better than the other car? It's like, well, because you're, you've got your natural frequency is high and you've got good torsional rigidity and then another factor is like what is your problem moment of inertia so like basically to what degree is like the mass grouped towards the center as opposed to spread out towards the, the outside like you can see this like with like an ice skater where if the ice skater holds arms out you rotate slowly brings arms in rotate right. fast right. that's what polar that's that's what's meant by polar moment of inertia exactly so it's like can you rotate this car fast you can if you bring the mass to the center we've had uh, lots of people discussing you know the pros and cons here but to me, you were saying, well, we got two for one, but you really got three for one because yeah. now you've got body stiffness that's gone up and all the other stuff that's gone along with it. When people say, well, what's it like to drive the car? Because again, we've stopped in yeah. lots of different places. And I tell them, if you, uh, if you get a seven series uh, BMW and drive that, that's what you're basically getting. It's the same sort of uh, suspension feel as that. And, it, and you don't yeah. have to, you're not muscling anything around. Everything is tight and perfect and tight's a good, and then if you, when you go to the, say, three structural members, mm -hmm. you put a body on top of that, it's going to be a perfect build. As a, as a guy yeah. who had to work in uh, body shops and as a guy who used to make uh, molds and dyes and whatnot, it's really difficult to take a whole bunch of pieces and glue them together and there's no nothing, right? Yeah. I'm just using fixtures and then yep. some well, purchasing... You're going to have tolerance stack up. I mean, that's the yeah. issue yeah. is like uh, if you've got a whole bunch of separate parts, and each of them has got a given tolerance. Um, yeah. Even if that tolerance is tight, and it could be like you know 0.2 millimeter tolerance, but you've got like 50 parts. Okay, now yeah. you, you know you and you multiply them together. Yeah, you, and you can't win. Exactly, and you're going to also have like just variance between cars. But that's for sure like one of the reasons why it's best to just combine the parts and not have separate parts. Right. Uh, and then also just go for extreme levels of precision. You know, one of the examples uh, uh, you know we use at Tesla is like Le Lego. So like Lego is super precise because it's a press fit. I think they're precise down to you know about a quarter millimeter or less, basically about ten thou. Um, and each one is exactly the same. Yeah, it's got to be. Yeah. And like if the Lego, if Lego is like too press is, is is too soft or too hard. Like if it's too soft, it won't, the, the press fit won't work. If it's too hard, you can't, you can't get it on. Right. Um, so, uh, but but they can get make something too that that is like a tiny fraction of a millimeter accurate and it's a low-cost toy right. you know like yeah. buy 20 bucks for a Lego set um, and so, if, so like if Lego can be that precise and so can a car I, I applaud uh, BMW for putting out the i3 but it, 
uh, ugly. But the uh, but the thing that we got from it was that carbon fiber body was absolutely perfect. Mm -hmm. And when you had, if you had the stiffness of uh, the castings down below, and you take a carbon fiber basically structure and put it over the top, absolutely every door is always going to be perfect. You won't have to have fixtures. You won't have to have anything. It just goes boom done. That's ultimately what I think. Uh, a perfect build is probably going to go for. But most people don't yeah. want to do it because they're talking about, oh, carbon fiber is so expensive. No, it's not. It's not really that expensive. Mm -hmm. and, and at the end of the day, you have to take it and look at it, a total accounted cost. Yeah. How much does it cost to basically, where's all the tooling and whatnot? How about all the scrap that you get on and on and on? There are some other <laughs> issues with cotton fiber, uh, which is that you know, uh, cotton fiber with resin has a, a coefficient of thermal expansion, which is basically zero. If you have uh, parts that are, say, aluminum or steel, that's, you know, aluminum's got quite a high uh, you know, CTE. Stainless has, it's like about halfway. Yeah. It's, you know, it's like if you have like a hot versus a cold environment, like you can't have your doors jam. Yeah, so correct. having you know matching matching CTE is pretty important for things like a door frame. If we're using say steel, we, we probably need to stay with a steel door because otherwise we're going to get like CTE issues. Yeah, we found out the tricks that um, BMW used. So they've got cross car beams, which yeah. is going to shrink the most, and they're embedded right into the carbon fiber. So how is that possible? This will rip free. We tried this when I worked on the Boeing 787 and stuff, yeah. and we tried that and when we you know you do the thermal expansion and contraction it just rips free from everything but clever design or clever engineering on BMW's part made it so that you could do that so I'm not saying you know run out and do this right now but yeah. eventually you guys are material science experts we know sure. a little bit about what's inside those electric motors and uh, and actually the uh, the aluminum used for the uh, for the mega castings these things all nobody has anything like that nobody yeah. using it most people I mean well, we they, have to develop our own alloy like so, so it's like some of the challenges with with doing like a large aluminum casting there is you, you don't want to have a sort of a, a heat treat or quench step afterwards often in order to get good properties from Aluminum, you need you T6. know. T6. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if, yeah. If you want to, if you you want to heat heat treat it, and, and and then the heat treating and, and any kind of like air or certainly you know water quench, it's going to cause the the thing's going to potato chip on you. It's going to yeah. basically it's warp. We had to develop a, a custom alloy to uh, make sure we could get good material properties, but not require a, a any step after the casting that could yeah. distort the shape. That was actually, that's an important, that's like a very important thing. For example, like the, the Model S and NX castings for, for the, you know, original Model S, not the new one, but the, the, for the original, they, they required a heat treat step right. afterwards. And, yeah. and, and so it was always a pain in the neck because we couldn't really expand the casting because it would, it would want a pretzel on us, like just potato chip or pretzel. It's like, you can't scale that. So it's yeah. so about development alley that was okay and, and it had good, it also had good elongation properties in the, in the event of a crash. That's like kind of a hard materials problem, so. I know a fair amount about, you know, casting and whatnot, and uh, no one believes when I say, you know, it fills up in four to six milliseconds. Oh, that's impossible. Really? Well, okay, fine. That kind of stuff is lost on most engineers yeah. because they don't take material science. I wanted to be a metallurgist. So. Yeah, material science is, I think, one of the most useful classes you can take in engineering, for sure. Absolutely. The area that I was, probably when I was going to be in at Stanford for grad studies before I kind of put that on hold slash drop, you know, dropped out basically was material science. I'm a big fan of material science. Well, I, I am as well. I think that that's something that I saw disappear when I was at Ford Motor Company because of the things that were going on uh, in the uh, late 80s and, uh, or sorry, the late 70s and early 80s. And they just had to shed some stuff and that went away uh, 
like they don't they don't invent materials there anymore and actually yeah. no one else did either or does either i think that those kinds of things are the things that maybe the bigger oems should be thinking about i think bringing stuff back in especially now i don't need the size of an engine plant and a transmission plant yeah. when i got a little dinky electric motor and a and basically a two-speed gearbox or one-speed gearbox yeah, one speed. i mean that, that's that's going to be a big big difference i don't know what they're going to do with all that stuff and i really don't know how how they're going to start implementing this i mean you may have heard that general motors said that 2035 they're going to be nothing but electric yeah, cars that's cool Sure. Well, that's a, that's a pretty big step. I've been saying for a long time, I had a lot, of, a lot of executives come in after I gave a speech and said, this was a couple of years ago now, and I said that the crossover point for electric over ice is 2030. Basically, that was because of tearing apart your car, the Model 3. You mean a majority of first, your car? When you say crossover point, how are you finding it? 50% of the yeah, vehicles yeah. are going to be sold, are going to be, um, or more than 50%, are going to be pure EV or they're going to be yeah. hybrid. And um, I like hybrid, like, no, for sure. I think it probably, 10 years, it's probably majority EV. Yeah, I, um, I truly believe that. But when I brought it out, I mean, the analysts were saying, you know, maybe somewhere around 2045, there'll be about about, uh, you know, 15% EVs and whatnot. Huh, sure. and, and now we're looking at California with 8% right now and going higher. Sure. And then you've got Europe saying, forget it. You can't drive here if you've got a, if you've got a nice vehicle. A lot of people were hoping that everything was going to stay the way it was or basically go back to the good old days, as it were. I was not. I, I was in your camp. I, like I say, when I got your car initially, I never really been, uh, I didn't care one way or another. Car's a car. We take it apart. We look inside. We find out how much it costs and what the techniques and technologies are. And then we just move on. With yours, initially, I don't like this, I don't like that. Then I drove it because I was the last one to drive that vehicle. Mm -hmm. And he said, you should really take this thing for a ride and see what it, and I took it into a parking lot and I zipped around and whatnot. And I'm, wow, I feel young again. This, I didn't expect yeah. that, that, that excitement. And then we started looking at the electronics, how much better, even the wiring is in, well, well even we, the wiring was. We have a lot to improve on the wiring front. Um, I think there's a lot more that can be done on, to improve wiring. Also oh. like 12 volts. I mean, what are we still doing with 12 volts? 42 is it's, where everybody should be, but. Uh, I think 48. Yeah. More 48, yeah. yeah. But but at the end of the day, we we, we need to do something. That'll, that'll reduce the wire diameters and stuff like that. And, yeah. and that's just nothing but cash in the bank. Yeah. So I'm, I'm a big fan of that as well. I, oh, I think with, the, with the new SX, we're also, we're, we're finally trans to a lithium-ion uh, 12 volt. So, oh, good. Yes, That's an the, excellent idea. Smaller box. It, it's got more, you know way more capacity, and and the the calendar and cycle life match that of the of the main pack. Oh, cool. So we should have done it before now, but it's great that we're doing it now. This is also, like this is one of those like inside baseball victories. That's yeah, kind of a big deal. 12 volts is like very much a vestigial voltage, and it's like absurdly low. Like basically, powered Ethernet is like around 50 volts. Yeah. Um, and so, so you can have like powered Ethernet. Nobody's like sweating at that. Like this is powered Ethernet. This like phone here. Nobody's worried about like powered Ethernet at like whatever 40, 48, 50 volts. That's that's really what the car, the, the car's low voltage system should be at. Yeah, absolutely, I agree. In fact, when we tore apart the Y, I was expecting to see that because you'd said that you were getting rid of weight and um, and the length of wires and whatnot. And when I pulled it yeah, off, the harness looked kind of similar. Uh, yeah. So it is what it is. And you really, you really want to you really want to put you want to put power and data over the same wires. That's right. Um, yeah. and, and and have it be high speed like higher speed than CAN bus. Right. And so so you can like basically dump data on the bus instead of having all these point-to-point -point wires absolutely that's that's kind of like uh, what I was kind of hoping I would see when we 
we took apart the why. But again, you say same thing. It's hard to change the tires when you're going 80 miles an hour. Um, you made comments, which I've been saying for years at Monroe. If you uh, if you want to if you want to get your master's, I'll pay for it. If you want to take a course in um, mechanics or something, I'll pay for it. If you even if you want to take a wood carving thing, I'll pay for it. But I will not pay for an MBA. I won't sure. do it ever, never. So you made a comment, and uh, I. Uh, I started tap dancing because people listen to you. Yeah, I think just generally the, the, the path to leadership should not be through basically MBA business school situation. It's it's like it should be kind of work your way up, do useful things. And, and there's, there's a bit too much of the somebody goes to high profile MBA school and then kind of parachutes in as the yeah. as the leader, but they don't actually know how things work. They could be good at, say, PowerPoint presentations or something like that, um, and they can present well, but they don't actually know how things work because they did not, they like parachute in instead of like working their way out. Yeah, you know? yeah they, so didn't, just, they never went through a, an apprenticeship, for yeah, lack of a better word, yeah. Yeah, there's, uh, they're, they're, they're kind of like just not aware of what, what's really needed for, uh, you know, to make, to make great products. I mean, I don't want to trash MBAs too much here, and I, I actually do have a dual undergrad, a Wharton undergrad, and physics at UPenn. I have direct exposure to, to business school, and I, and I was a t teaching assistant for two semesters and I graded MBAs and undergrads. But I think it's just a little bit too much. People look at MBA school as like, I, I want to parachute into being the boss instead of earning it. And like, I don't think that's that's good. I've never really been a fan of short sellers. I, I don't know whether you have a comment on that. There's very few areas in life where you can you can sell things that you don't own. Short, short selling really, really, where you can sell shares that you don't own, it came from an era when stock, stocks were traded by people traveling on horseback to exchange stock certificates. And in order to have the, the transaction speed not be like, not take weeks, somebody would say, well, the, the stock certificate is coming on that horse, I don't have the stock certificate right now, but I promise you that I'm getting the stock certificate and the rider's gonna be here, I'm in New York, the rider's gonna be here from Chicago in, in three days and then, and then I'll be able to give you the stock certificate. Yeah. That's where that, this whole silly thing arose. Yeah. The way short selling is used today is it's, it's kind of like, it's frankly used against the public. You know, and, and so the, the, most people aren't aware that short selling even exists. And then the ones that are, very few of them are, know, how, know actually how to, how to use it. It's basically like 0.01% of stockholders know how to use short positions to, to get ahead. It's, so it's, it's, it's like, I think, effectively a tax on the public. Um, I think it's immoral myself. I just don't think it's right at all. Yeah, yeah. The, a big group can come in and crush uh, a company simply because, well, we're gonna make a lot of money. I haven't made my, haven't made yeah. my quota this month or what have you. So I, I really don't care for it. Yeah, I mean, Tesla was under massive attack by the short and distort, where they take a short position and then they do everything possible to trash the company in every six ways a Sunday. And they were successful. And, and this has now happened to Tesla twice. It happened in 2013 and it happened in, in basically 2017 through through 2019. I mean, the intensity of the attack was 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 crazy. And I was like, man, this, this you know, it would like cause you to lose faith in humanity, the, the degree to this, which this yeah. went on. Like, we don't have shorting. In, like private companies, the vast majority of companies, over 90% are, are private and you cannot short them. And yet somehow we get, the, you know, private companies get things done. There's a perniciously false uh, effective markets argument made for uh, shorting, but it is vice disguised as virtue. The most exciting thing that's happened to me in a long time was driving that, uh, the, the, the self-driving, uh, the self-driving, no, uh, I'm telling you, it's just, sure. 
it's it blows your mind are you gonna are you gonna let anybody else have that <laughs> yeah of course i mean we were gonna roll out the full self driving to the whole fleet and make, make it available to the whole fleet we're just being you know, very careful about the testing i think there's actually sort of a dangerous uh middle ground that we have to be careful of where the, the system is is good like 99.9 percent .9 of the time and and then that could lead people to be uh, complacent and but then that one time where it's, it's got issues that you know that we don't want people to basically it, it, it can be so good that you you get comfortable but not not initially good enough to handle all of the corner cases. So we, we want to just make sure that in that transition to full self-driving, it's really, we're taking as much care as possible. Yeah, I'm, I was happy with what we had on the uh, autopilot. It's the first time I've ever gotten a chance to see what the scenery looks like. I always just do lines. Yep. Now I can have a look around and feel comfortable or confident that yep. my hands are on the wheel and if something goes wrong, I can correct, but I can yep. also enjoy what's going on. A, a car that does not have self-driving in the future will be about as popular as a horse. <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly like horses right. are They're still horses. People have horses and they're, yeah. they're but they're, they're, it's, a horse is not what you use for day-to-day -day transport. Right. Well, I think actually that, that's, that's one of the things we're, we're, we're going to program into the yeah. car, that, that if, if, yeah. if, you, if, you, if you fall asleep in the car, it'll just take you home. Like it is most likely that's where you want to go. If it, if it detects that you're having issues, it'll take you to the hospital. Like if you say like, you know, just like- Yeah, having a, a heart attack or something yeah, like something that. Like, yeah. It'll just take you straight yeah. to the emergency room. Well, I, I think I mentioned this already. I think that the self-driving feature is going to save more lives than seat belts, airbags, and every yeah. other thing that we've done to cars combined, because that's that's the way to go. Uh, absolutely. I mean, there's a, worldwide, there's about a million people a year dying in, in car accidents. That's a hell of a lot. And yeah, so uh, there's like 10 million people that get seriously injured. So it's like, you know, we got to hustle on this. I'm so flattered. Yeah, I'm, I'm so happy that I got a chance to meet you. All right. Talk to you. Shake your hand. Thank you so much. You're Thank welcome. You.